Population control. Is it kooky paranoid nuttery or a real plan being worked in by the international oligarch class? Today I'm talking to the author of a fascinating new book that looks at population control, past and present. He'll also discuss how the global COVID-19 response may fit into the population control scheme. This is the first of a two-part interview with Dennis Barron about some of the disturbing and fascinating content in his new book, Endgame. Next time, we'll be discussing the elitist plans for a post-human future and the emerging behavior modification tools awaiting those who are stubborn enough to kick and scream into tomorrow. But before we dive in, please remember to go to our social media platforms where you can like, subscribe, and share this video. It'll help us offset big tech's restrictions, and it'll help get our crucial message to more people. I'm Paul Dregu, and this is Freedom is the Care. Dennis Barron is the publisher of the New American Magazine, a research expert, and the author of a brand new book called Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. Wow, that's a handful. Dennis, <laughs> I mean, mouthful. It is. Indeed. Well, yeah, depending on which way you want to look at right. it, for sure. <laughs> thanks for joining me, man. Well, thanks, Paul. I'm always glad to talk with you. Yeah, so like I've said off camera, I've really uh, enjoyed your book. I don't know if that's a misuse of the term considering the content, but yeah. uh, there's a lot of uh, crazy stuff in there. You know, especially we've done a pretty good job, I would say, of tracking and looking at some of these issues. You touch on transhumanism and nanotechnology and, of course, what we'll be discussing, uh, past and present uh, concept of population control. But there's so much in there that I, I still feel like uh, like I learned and so, obviously, this, I'm not just plugging it, although I kind of am, but I would highly recommend that those who have not gotten the book that they do. But I just want to say good job on that book, man. Thanks, thanks, Paul. I really appreciate that. It's, uh, I wouldn't call it a labor of love, but it's not. I, I felt like I needed to write it because I, I felt that these uh, concepts and things that had been happening needed to be put together in a, in a cohesive whole uh, where that hadn't been done quite that way before. Everything's always been handled on a piecemeal basis and the whole picture hadn't been described. So that's what I attempted to do with this book. But I, I, I do feel like it's a shame I or anyone else would have had to write this book because of the world we live in today. So, right. uh, but you know, again, hopefully the book will contribute to uh, maybe overcoming the challenges that we are currently being uh, faced with that are being placed in front of us by uh, certain people who have alternative visions for the world, and uh, we can get to uh, a better place where liberty is restored and respected and prosperity grows from that, and uh, families and freedom are uh, not constantly under assault. Right, right. And you did a terrific job of, of pro uh, providing citations because I think you may, I don't, I'm not sure if you say it in the book or not, but as we've said over and over, it seems so fantastic, so even ludicrous, so science fiction-y that, you know, most would be like, well, that's just crazy and they'll dismiss it. And I think it's really important that we provide citations to, to, to these sources. So uh, in chapter two of Endgame, you titled it Too Many Humans, and it's about population control, right. which is what we'll be discussing. And you trace the idea of population control uh, back a few centuries. You start with the English economist Thomas Malthus, and you work your way up to Ted Turner and Bill Gates and entertainment and software magnates who refuse to stay in their, their lanes. Uh, let's start with today and work our way back. Why do you believe 
Population control is very much a concept that is alive and being implemented today. Well, the reasons today are different from the reasons the originators of the ideas for population control held at that time. Uh, so there's been a transition in the thought process, um, even though the end state for these people still is population control. The reason for that population control being now a hotter topic uh, is because the situation, uh, the people who hold that opinion they believe that situation has changed uh, dramatically. And it's no longer uh, the ecological side of things, even though they still give voice to that. Uh, it's no longer the eco ecological point. Now it's a matter of technology and economics. And um, we first saw the first hint of that uh, with something maybe people didn't quite pick up on or maybe had a, a uh, an ill feeling about but didn't know why, and that's during the COVID crisis when some people were designated as essential. Uh, a minority of people were designated as essential workers, and the majority of people were non-essential. Um, if you were in the non-essential category, uh, that should have made you feel a little uh, queasy because uh, we have a history of um, the population control proponents designating people as non-essential and calling for them to be sterilized mm. or calling for them to be eliminated. And this history is not just in the place that most people expect to find it in Nazi Germany, but in the Western nations as well, including the United States. Uh, so when a whole population of people, in fact, the majority of people are designated as non-essential, that should make people a little nervous. Well, moving forward then, that should make you a lot nervous when you realize that the the leadership class that uh, believes that there is an overpopulation now believes that that overpopulation will become increasingly obsolete by technology, mm -hmm. increasingly unemployable by technology, and because unemployable, unable to support themselves and their families, and now a burden permanently moving forward on society. Now, you have people who firmly believe this is happening and going to happen over the next 5 to 10 to 15 years and openly wondering what to do with these people. And uh, when I say these people, I mean you and I and other people in the middle class, the uh, blue collar workers, the deplorables. They're now people who are openly wondering, what do we do with these people? Do we just entertain them and give them a stipend to live on? Or what else should we be considering? This is a dangerous trend, a dangerous idea. And really, the book Endgame is about how people hold dangerous ideas and how those ideas lead to actions and how those actions are often very, very damaging and deadly. Let's let's talk about some of these people who, uh, the power and the prominence of some of these people with these ideas, that that should give credence to it and, and raise concern. You yeah. know, who are some of these people who are openly discussing this? Yeah. I, I, for one, I know that Yuval Harari is, is one. You know, the, I believe I have the book 21 Reasons or 24 yeah. Lessons for the 21st Century. And there's a chapter clear in there yeah. where he says we're going to move to this future. What are we going to do with the uh, – I don't – what's the term he uses? Uh, with people who basically we can't use. They, they, yeah. they won't have the skills. But, you know, but in addition to Yuval Harari, who do you mention in your book? Well, Harari is a mouthpiece – He's the intellectual front man for the group of people pulling the strings. So uh, when you hear uh, the ideas that Harari is giving voice to, I don't think you're hearing them coming from him directly. Uh, certainly he's contributing uh, his ability to communicate and his thought process to that. But he's a, fr he's a front for the World Economic Forum. So he's a, 
He's a Klaus Schwabian, uh, if you want to refer to Klaus Schwab as the, the leader of the World Economic Forum. And Klaus Schwab sort of is the nexus for a lot of this. The people who swirl around him, the billionaire class, they include folks like Bill Gates, who in 2010 uh, openly called for using vaccination as a means of driving population reduction at a TED conference, so nothing really hidden. Um, now, people have wondered, did he mean we would actually use vaccination to kill people? Uh, you know, he has said subsequently, and his wife has said subsequently, no, they meant something sociological uh, about this and, and even economic about this, that the effect of vaccines would uh, cause people to suffer fewer deaths, especially childhood deaths. Families would be more stable, and because families are more stable, parents wouldn't have as many children. And so we would reduce the population that way. I'm not sure that's any less nefarious, really, because that's still psychological manipulation. That's still covertly making people do actions that they might otherwise not take. Um, you know, there's still problems psychologically with that, or there's still problems even uh, in many ways with that kind of position. But uh, He's not the only one. Uh, you know, we had the Good Club meeting that Bill Gates attended right around that same time frame. If you haven't heard about the Good Club, that was a secret meeting in, I believe it was New York City, that involved Ted Turner, a longtime proponent of advanced population control measures, uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Soros. Um, I believe Warren Buffett was one of the organizers of this. These were the only people who were part of the Good Club, and as the, the major mainstream press reported at the time, the key topic of conversation, even though no one was privy to the actual details, unless you were happened to be uh, rich enough to be in the club, uh, the, the mainstream press at the time reported that the key topic of that of that meeting was population control. So these are the world's richest, most influential people, mm -hmm. and they're talking about, well, how, we, how do we control the population? What were the things that came out of the good club? I think we should all want to know. Will we ever find out? I don't you know. You mentioned Ted Turner in your book. You had uh, cited a conversation or something he had said, I believe, in 2012, where he was talking about population control, and he was asked, like, okay, well, he made it clear that he thinks there, there should be a reduction or at least control of it. And he was asked, like, what's the number that is dramatically less yeah. than the amount of people that, that we have now? What, uh, what are some practical ways you would hypothesize or guesstimate that is being used today for population control? I think a lot of people watching what they eventually want to know, I mean, you have the, the COVID uh, deal in your subtitle. Is there an element of that that you would, based on available uh, documentation? There sure say, is, uh, yeah. Um, the, the point that brought Endgame into existence was uh, the question of public policy vis-a-vis -vis COVID, which most of public policy in terms of how governments at the national and local and state levels here in the U.S. and really all other governments, really all other governments around the world with a few minor exceptions, all of those policies ran counter to uh, both common sense as well as pre-existing academic work on how to deal with the spread of a disease. Uh, in, in, in almost every case, those policies were diametrically opposed to what should have been done and caused increased harms. Uh, including deaths. So uh, the question that I asked myself before I started writing this is, is this because suddenly everyone's an idiot? Uh, are all these policies just mistakes being made because no one knows what to do? Uh, and I thought that is not a, not a tenable hypothesis because, uh, you know, I went through a biology program in the 1990s, uh, so I understood uh, at that level, you know, 
the basics of disease spread and the basics of microbiology. And I thought, I am not exceptional in this in any way. Um, all these people at these levels pulling these policy levers have far more education in those fields than I have. They would have received the exact same training and information that I did at an even more advanced level. Therefore, they are, they're not making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Something else is in play. Okay, what is it? And so then I started looking at all the possibilities of what could explain, what is what are other hypotheses that could explain yeah. this public policy, uh, seemingly off-the-rails public policy that we were pursuing. And um, I think the hypothesis that population control is uh, at the root of this is not ruled out. Uh, and because it's long, very deep history of advocacy within the richest levels, most influential levels of our oligarchic class from the top levels of business, uh, from the top non-governmental organizations and in government itself, uh, combined with what we were seeing in COVID and the statements of our modern oligarchic class, uh, I think not only can we not rule it out, we have to take that as a very serious hypothesis. And we now have uh, a growing body of evidence of the harms of the vaccines yeah. worldwide that does not conflict with this hypothesis, hypothesis either. And we have to start taking it seriously that as horrible as it is to say that maybe there was a, a, a very damaging policy being pursued uh, secretly right. here with this. You, are, you were one of the most prominent writers of, of covid a policy and the destructiveness uh, during as from the early years on even to now uh, here at the new american and you know when you and i once talked uh, you know there was that issue the freedom is the cure issue after right. you know where i got the idea for the name of this show because whatever the societal ailment freedom is always the cure Absolutely. but in that case we were especially applying it in a more medical term and you had in i believe isn't the april special issue a special report you had said like these things are not going to work the the lockdowns the police state controls and things like that and then furthermore you said they're gonna make things worse and of course over the years then we learned that that is exactly what has happened uh they did make things worse in every sense of uh every sense of the the word we we've learned even from mainstream media that because of the 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 restrictions on movement and lockdowns and things like that people who would normally get medical care they didn't we learned that the suicide rate increased we learned that drug use and abuse and, and depression, all these things that cut lives shorter or make them more miserable, all increased. And now recently we just learned that, for instance, where there's a walkout or a large exodus at CDC, NIH. And in a way, I'm kind of wondering what took them so long. But, right. but you would think there's a connection there because people are realizing, maybe they're realizing like there is something intentional about these policies and maybe population control as nutty as it sounds it it doesn't really because now we'll dive into the history of it but i mean you're saying that's probably what's what's happening i think think it's a good hypothesis yeah i think like i said i went through my biological training as an undergrad uh, in the 1990s and Nothing that uh, I learned there, which was in a very, very good program, uh, which I think still holds up extremely well what I learned then uh, in the laboratory and in the, in the work, uh, I don't think anything has been invalidated. And I think everyone who is in public policy, as I said, has gone through the exact same mm-hmm. thing. So I think there is a realization that people looking back on their training versus what they then directly experienced I think that is probably starting to hit home this this disconnect between the reality of what the research had been showing for decades as to how you really uh, 
uh, uh, work with a, a disease and even a pandemic disease versus what we did, yeah. that dichotomy cannot be covered up permanently. Eventually, it's going to lead to certain level of cognitive dissonance among scientists who otherwise participate in it. Yeah. Uh, not just scientists, but people with uh, technical and scientific training in mm. some of these areas who uh, may not be working directly in the sciences, but are somehow involved in public policy at various levels of government and non-governmental activity. Uh, at some point, that cognitive dissonance I would have I would have predicted, and I think we can now see in the reality of it is going to lead to what you just said, this phenomenon of people you know reputed, reputedly leaving their jobs at CDC and maybe some other places. Yeah. Um, we you know, maybe we, maybe the Deborah Burks book is a good example. I mean, I mean, I didn't, I haven't read the Burks book. I've read some uh, interviews with Burks since she released her book, but you know, it seems that she's even admitting, oh yeah, we we cooked the, we cooked the statistics. We were we were kind of lying. We were kind of mis misrepresenting what was going on because we had some other goal in mind. Right. Well, was it, was it Dr. Scott Atlas? Was that was that his first name? Scott Atlas. Yeah. Yeah. He had written a book that was published a few months back. I think it's called Plague Upon Our House. And he, the premise of it was that he would come into these these uh, COVID task force meetings, and he claims that he would be the only one there that brought yeah. data, and it was clear to him, as it seems that there was a, there was a, an agenda there, and and following the data. Science was not was was not part of it. Let's go back to a, a semi history of population control. Like I said, you start with Tom, Thomas Malthus, the the English economist, and he advocated population control. What, what are his reasons? And then let's go forward and and look at the reasons they're advocating it today. Yeah, well, Malthus's reason was, you know, what I would call the basic ecological reason, and that is um, the population will expand faster than the capacity to grow food. Uh, Malthus was pretty clear about this in his opinion that, you know, for a while there you would have food keeping up with population growth, but uh, population growth is geometric and food production is not. And so there is a period of going to be two centuries from the time he wrote, he predicted that uh, we're going to have the inability to feed the population. It's just not going to happen, and there's going to be massive famine and starvation. Mm. And I don't think... I don't think Malthus necessarily was writing this as an evil genius. I think he might have been legitimately worried about this because the level of technology and understanding of the day he was writing was such that this seemed reasonable. Um, and uh, economic theory and uh, thought about uh, you know how innovation works was very rudimentary at the time. So I don't think Malthus had the intellectual tools to think in another way. Uh, however, that has not been the case since Malthus. Uh, a great deal of economic theory and thought has gone into how market economies work and how innovation occurs. Right. And but, but let's go back to, he was saying that we won't be able to feed. We won't be able to feed, yeah. Right. Now, this was at a time, the time after that, I think many would, would agree, is when we had more food around the world, we were able to better feed the world than yep. ever. This past century and whatnot, the technology increased our our potential to, to create food to where mm -hmm. we have too much. We're all walking around yep. with a lot of extra stuff. I know the feeling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so not only was he wrong, he was astronomically yeah. wrong. He was very wrong because quite the opposite happened yeah. uh, in this, at least half of his equation. Yes, the population kept increasing, 
Uh, but so did the food way beyond what the population needed to the point where we have too much. Well, it's not just food either, by the way. I mean, Malthus was writing at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And what did the Industrial Revolution do? It affected not just farming. It did affect farming and food production. It also affected the production of every other commodity that mm. uh, civilization relies upon. And, uh, you know, at the time, there were many people like Malthus who took other aspects of the Industrial Revolution and said, we're going to throw all the craft workers out of business and it's going to be devastating for the economy. What are these people going to do? Uh, well, in fact, uh, more people became employed as a result of the Industrial Revolu Revolution than were em employed in the craft industries. And better quality production uh, followed that employment. More production followed that employment. And the living standard of every single person rose dramatically, yeah. dramatically, and not just in food, but in food also. Uh, and this is a trend that continued. And as it continued and grew in, in the level at which industrialization was occurring, the competitive aspect of the market economy meant that if company A wanted to produce and sell more of its product mm -hmm. than its direct competitor, it needed to come up with a way to make that product better, yeah. faster, and cheaper. So innovation was called for and innovation was achieved. And this, this took place in every aspect of the economy, including food, which is why Malthus turned out to be absolutely wrong. Let's talk about the eugenicist aspect of population control. You touch on that. Margaret Sanger obviously yeah. comes up a lot, but can you can you go into that a little bit? Well, this is incredibly important for the point that Endgame is making as you get through it as a reader, uh, because it's not just about population control. Yeah, we want to. The, the population controllers would say, "Well, we, we need to get rid of the excess population," but. We need to keep the correct population, and we need to improve that population. We can make them better. And so the eugenicists were an early crude attempt to find ways to breed better humans. Mm. Uh, so uh, Margaret Sanger wanted to get rid of the defectives, the epileptics. I'm using language that she used now. Mm. Not, not, this is not my language. Uh, defectives, epileptics, imbeciles. Uh, imbeciles. Um, you know, she, she the was weak. A racist, the weak, yeah. I mean, so she wanted to, literally, she had a plan where she wanted these people forcibly incarcerated, taken to open spaces, put on collective farms, carefully managed. They would have no freedom. They wouldn't be allowed to breed. Then they would die. They'd be taken out of the population. And as a result, we would have guided evolution of the population to a better breed of human. That's, sterilization. Sterilization was part of that, yeah. Were there... Uh governmental sterilization campaigns that were carried out? At the state level all across the union, every state had, had some of these. Some states were worse than others. I believe it was California that had the mm -hmm. biggest sterilization campaign. Here in Wisconsin there was sterilization. I don't think any state, any state escaped this. Uh, so people were forcibly sterilized against their will, yes. And some didn't even know it, right? They, some didn't they know did it. in various ways. And who's, who's, that's so scary because as we'll go in part two, there are, there, are, there are concepts and ideas that others high on up have mad scientists about uh, un, yeah, not <laughs> letting us know about what they're gonna, we're going to do to change their minds. And now, so let's talk about the difference with all that. What's the difference in population control advocates today as as opposed to the ones we just we had just mentioned well the difference before is that it was purely uh, being pushed as uh, we need to reduce the number of people because we simply can't feed them now that transmogrified a little bit over time into too many people are hurting the earth and we just can't let these people hurt the earth because people are a plague and you started to see the reference to an overpopulation of people as a cancer upon the earth and that became the language 
uh, used for quite a while, uh, right up through, say, the 1970s. Um, so th that was really a primary, a primary way that the critics of uh, human population looked at people. So they didn't look at people as uh, other people who are worthwhile, who should be cherished, who should be loved, who should be respected. They looked at people as a, literally a plague on the planet. Um, and this, cave, this came along with the rise of the Gaia hypothesis that the Earth is some sort of actual living being uh, and that we're hurting the Earth, we're a plague on the Earth, and that living being has a better claim to life than we do. And, and so, you know, we should make sure we protect Gaia. Uh, kind of that New Age kind of nonsense. Mm. We took it as nonsense if, you know, if you're a regular person. Um, but uh, the opponents of humanity... This was not nonsense to them. Yeah. Yeah. They, they took this very seriously. They acted upon this idea. And what's scary about that is now you hear it's it's not, like you said, it's not just a fringy, weird concept. Like, it, I, I would think it's normal. I've run into people who are like, oh, we're not having kids. It's like we're, you know, for you know, look at the, the condition of the earth. But a lot of times they'll just be like, man, like we don't want to do that to the. So now there, th there's this demeaning yeah. of humanity's value. And like you said, the value of the earth. And again, we're not. I'm. I, I think we all agree the value of the earth is it, it's our home, it's our mm -hmm. planet and, and, and whatnot. So what would you say to those? It's like, why is that wrong? You know, why is it wrong to say it's like, well, we're going to if we don't start implementing some sort of population controls, we will destroy our planet. Because I could see that as being a, as a reasonable concern. You know, if you're a kid, you're a teenager and then you're in your 20s and you're growing and, and you're seeing this stuff, it's not hard to believe that we are whatever, destroying the earth, that there needs to be less of us, that we don't care for, for, for Mother Earth and whatnot. What would you say to that, to those people? The answers are non-obvious until you think about them and then they become quite obvious. Um, and you have to almost get into a little bit of metaphysics here, uh, which is necessary for understanding where we are at. Uh, this is not strictly metaphysics, but it, it, it encroaches that line. So what is, the, what is a person? What is a human? A human is the most complex uh, creature, the most complex element of reality of the material universe that we are aware of. And by that I mean not just the physicality of that complexity, not just the biochemistry of that complexity, but the, the consciousness that is inherent in that, in that complexity. Nothing else that we are aware of, other than humans, has this complexity. The, so basically, in, in this sense, humans are the most advanced form of intelligence that is possible to conceive of at this time in the real universe. More humans means more complexity, more thought processes coming out of that complexity, which leads to greater innovation. Now, I worked in knowledge management uh, for a corporation uh, for a number of years, more than a decade. And in the world of knowledge management for corporations, the reason corporations do this is because they're interested in innovation. Mm -hmm. They have to innovate to survive. So they look for how do we engender innovation amongst our employees and come up with better products and services. And the answer is always the same. And the theory of this is that you put more people together so that they can share ideas amongst them uh, themselves. And because you put more people to do that uh, working together in this company, company A, for instance, versus company B, company A then is more successful and is more likely to come up with more innovations. This was the practice, explicitly the practice, at some of the great mid-century, 20th century think tanks like Bell Laboratories. 
uh, probably the greatest private think tank that ever existed in terms of coming up with innovations for products and services within the American economy. Uh, the, the whole idea was, even down to the design of the building, was how do you encourage interaction amongst the employees so that they can bounce ideas off each other. More people bouncing more ideas off each other leads to more innovation. That's the, that's the fundamental counter to the population control argument. If you reduce the population of the company, mm. uh, or if that's forced to, forcibly reduced because the company is otherwise mismanaging funds or not you know, having some other problem, innovation starts to fail. And this, you know, taken broadly across society, the more people working together in the market economy leads to more efficient use of resources for better products and services, leads to advances in the ability to derive energy from resources that exist. Yeah. In other words, more, concentra more concentrated sources of energy. So we have historically gone from diffuse sources of energy, such as biomass, uh, to more increasingly concentrated sources of energy, such as hydrocarbons, to the greatest, most concentrated source of energy that we've pre to, to this date have had, which is nuclear energy. Uh, and in the offing are other future nuclear energies, potentially like fusion if the technology can be further developed. But we, we have backed away from this because of faulty ideas about the carrying capacity of the earth, the population of people, and the idea that if we use these concentrated energy sources, there's some sort of nebulous danger that comes with them, which is not true. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to use more concentrated forms of energy leads to safer energy use always. Yeah. Um, and so nuclear energy is far and away not only the most efficient source of energy, it's also the safest source of energy we've ever had. Uh, so as we innovate, we not only become better able to produce our population, feed our population, we actually have a, a less devastating imprint on the pop, on the planet itself, on the ecology of the planet. So you saw this, for instance, in the United States versus, say, communist China in the 1970s, or even the 1960s, or versus the Soviet Union in mm -hmm. the same time period. Those places were you know, notorious for the uh, environmental devastation uh, that they wrought upon the environments within their countries. But how could they be? They eliminated millions of people. <laughs> they did. They eliminated millions of people. And you see the lie right there. They were terrible at the efficient use of resources because mm -hmm. of the communist system versus the West. The West being a capitalist system, free markets. Uh, we didn't have to murder people to the same degree uh, here in the West. And we used energy much more efficiently. And the environment rapidly, uh, as we innovated, grew cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. And uh, I remember growing up, there were certain problems with the Great Lakes uh, where it was uh, concerning as to, you know, what levels of pollution were possibly yeah. being entering into Lake Superior, for instance. And uh, I can tell you, having gr grown up around Lake Superior and been around Lake Superior all my life, those concerns are gone because we innovated our way out of those concerns. Yeah. Those yeah. concerns no longer exist. Um, that wasn't the case in many of the places in uh, in the Soviet Union and in China until recently, uh, when certain things have improved there because of the import of Western tech. Um, but it's innovation that drives things. Innovation uh, finds its root in population, and a shrinking population tends to undermine that innovation, take us backwards. And that's such an uh, that's such an elitist approach in the first place that. We don't necessarily need more people. They're probably thinking we just need the right people, and they're probably thinking they're the right people. They're the right and, people, and not. <laughs> I, I know you touched on it, but let's 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 wrap it up with this. Let's clarify the role that liberty, that freedom, plays in all of this. Not just in us having individual yeah. uh, liberty, but even in in whatever the economy, the planet, when all these issues that we supposedly have. How does liberty make that yep. better and not worse? 
Well, we can talk about the moral foundation of liberty and why that's important, because it is, in my mind, the most important. But if we want to talk about the utilitarian and functional aspect that liberty plays in this, it goes back to the complexity of the human mind and the cognition that people bring to the table uh, when working in groups and individually, voluntarily. Uh, if you restrict liberty, what you're really doing in that sense is you are artificially imposing controls on the way people can use their cognitive capabilities. And when you artificially impose those controls, uh, whether it's on an existing population or physically limiting the number of people who can't you're killing the spirit of the of the human spirit. Yeah, you're preventing it from working. You're preventing mm -hmm. that from happening. So you're killing off innovation one way or the other. You're either preventing people from being born or you're killing them outright so they're not present to be able to innovate or you're putting roadblocks in front of them and yeah. saying, no, you're not allowed to innovate. Uh, if in a free situation, uh, in, a, in, uh, in a society characterized by liberty, uh, fundamental liberty that protects liberty like our Constitution was designed to do here in the United States. Uh, people are free to collaborate to come up with a better way to do things um, and when you do that again it leads to it leads to the innovation that leads to advanced successes. So here's an example of one of these things that's taking place just in recent days I saw a headline in Amish Farmer um, who was uh, investigated by the feds in the last couple of days. His, his, his farm was raided because they didn't like the way in which he was uh, selling the produce of his farm. That is fundamentally outrageous, but here's the thing. It's fundamentally outrageous because it's an imposition on his moral liberty, on his, his humanity as a person. Structurally, in the economy, that's an imposition on a, the possibility that he's come up with a better way to service more people in the in the food supply. Mm. And what are we seeing right now? What is everyone worried about? We're worried about the integrity of the food supply. And why is the food supply integrity damaged? It's because of ridiculous levels of government intervention. Yeah. And these happen through war, which is currently ongoing. These happen through... Uh, artificial restrictions in response to that war, which are coming straight out of our Western governments. They're happening through regulatory bodies, such as the US FDA, which are in bed with uh, other organizations that are looking to benefit through backscratching uh, between bureaucracies rather than actual innovation. And we're actually throwing roadblocks in the way of the innovation that could cause more people to be fed more easily, more efficiently, and more cheaply. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, I'm sorry to say, our own governments worldwide are inhibiting the ability of people to take care of themselves and causing the food insecurity that is now looming in front of us. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's becoming very, very clear. Uh, unfortunately, it is happening, and it should have never gotten this, this bad. And a lot of it, I would say, has to do with the fact that these regulatory agencies are so powerful. Yeah. And that's obviously a huge reason we are always, you know, Warning the alarm bells. Yep. It's like no, no, no. You know, it's like no. We need to. We need to disempower. We need to dis decentralize. But obviously, for the longest time, it has gone the other way. All right. Last question. Yeah. What's What's the answer? People, you know, the viewers and what? What do we need to do? Get in the know and get active. Well, fundamentally, yes. Yeah. So, but there's a key element here in the United States that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, and I think Americans don't really perceive this adequately enough. 
no other country in the world has a constitution that organizes a government specifically in the way that it restricts the legitimate areas in which the government can act can act. And it makes those restrictions specifically because it wants the government to not be able to interfere with the liberties of the people. This doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Every other every other government that you look at has a constitution or, or founding document that says, uh, well, we'll protect the liberty up to and until uh, we think it's bad to have that liberty. And so they give themselves You can have your liberty clause. as long as we think it's yeah. okay. We, we don't, they don't have anywhere else in the world what we have, say, in the uh, Bill of Rights that says government shall not impinge on the mm. freedom of speech or government shall make no law bridging mm. this or that. A lot uh, of shall nots. Yeah. There <laughs> is, this doesn't exist anywhere else. Americans have this. So if you are informed as an American, you know what the Constitution says and you know what the issues are that face you, your family, and your communities – you can then advocate for yourselves adequately with your representatives at all levels, whether that be people running for sheriff, whether that be people running for school board, whether that be people running for state legislatures, whether that be people running for county board, uh, right up to the federal apparatus in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Make sure you're informed and then engage with your representatives. If you don't engage with your representatives, who are they going to hear from? They're going to hear from the people who want population control, mm-hmm. and they're going to be pressured from those people, and they're going to think, "Oh, well, this must be the yeah. this must be the right thing to do. This is what my constituency wants." So, if you're part of the actual constituency and you don't want those things, make sure your voice is heard, because otherwise, they don't know. Absolutely, absolutely. The time for sitting on the sidelines is way over. It's been over, and it's part of the reason that we are in the mess that we are. We always encourage yep. that here, Dennis. Thank you so much. You're welcome, uh, Paul. That was awesome. Glad to be on. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next next episode. Appreciate it. Well, there's nothing new about people who scheme the control and rule over others. And there's nothing new about elitists who, under the pretense of a noble quest, will strip people of freedom and even eliminate us entirely. A brief perusal of history confirms this has already happened. That's why here at the John Birch Society, we're always yammering like a broken record, about how crucial liberty is. Liberty always, no matter the so-called emergency, no matter the so-called risk to public health, no matter anything, liberty always. So whatever the societal ailment, however fake or real the crisis is, freedom is always the cure. So get in the know and get plugged into the fight. And if you haven't already, apply to join the John Birch Society. We have a robust educational apparatus, and we have the organizational structure to mobilize enough people to change this country for the better and ensure that aspiring tyrannical maniacs stay out of our lives. We've been dug in the trenches for 63 years, and we have the battle scars and the experience to prove it. So get in touch with a local coordinator to get you started. We've provided links in the description below. And make sure to tune in to part two of this interview next week.